these different encounters, Jesus basically keeps throwing fuel on the fire and, and metaphorically, if you will, kind of slapping the religious leaders upside the head. I mean, just over and over again, uh, he's not doing anything to be any more gentle and kind to them. He keeps kind of provoking them, you know, taking a pointed stick and going, here, take that, take that, you know. So it's really getting tense, this conflict between Jesus and the religious leaders. And we'll see a little bit this morning, but, but this morning kind of sets the stage for next week when man, oh man, the high drama hit. And Jesus calls the religious leaders uh, son of the devil, as Bobby Boucher would say, all right? Uh, it, it is a, it's pretty intense next week as Jesus and the religious leaders, I mean, stand toe-to-toe like heavyweight fighters. And reading about this conflict and seeing what's ta- what takes place, I think it's kind of like watching a movie for us where, where the bully or, or the villain in a movie finally gets what's coming to him or her. I mean, you, you know what this is like. You know those famous movie villains or those famous bullies that we watch and we see and we begin to root against. I think about Ivan Drago in Rocky IV. You know, I mean, the, the big, you know, Russian, the, the, the crew cut haircut. He killed Apollo Creed. You don't mess with Apollo. You don't kill Apollo and get away with it, all right? So in Rocky Four, you know, he's that villain. He's one of those guys. He's kind of like, for me, probably Benjamin Linus from Lost. If you were a Lost person, you know they're a bad villain or a bully. When you see them in one movie and you see them in anything else and you don't like them because of what was in the other one. That, that's why with, with Ivan, with, with uh, Benjamin Linus from Lost, I mean, there are a lot of them. You think of uh, Commodus from The Gladiator. Uh, you think about the Percy, the prison guard, and the Green Mile. I, I did like, a, uh, somebody sent me a Google list of some of the famous villains and there's like the t-1000 from terminator 2 you know you root against uh, uh, you got in there uh, the joker from batman and then on that list believe it or not was miss hannigan Oh, you know Miss Hannigan. I didn't know if you were going to get that one or not. She was the orphanage leader in, in Annie. You remember that movie? Well, you all knew that right away. I was like, Miss Hannigan, but yeah, you all were there. But what, we, what I think about this is when they finally get theirs, we go, yeah. You, you cheer, don't you, when, when they finally get theirs. If not, just nothing else on the inside, you go, yeah, they deserve that, you know. And so in this conflict, Jesus is a crowd favorite. The crowds loved him because he was confronting the bullies of his day. These religious leaders were like those bullies. They put all kinds of stipulations and laws and rules and these heavy burdens on the people that you've got to do this and you can't do this and you've got to follow this. And they're putting all these things on the people and they themselves were not doing it. I mean, it's the picture, the epitome of hypocrisy. You all do these things, but we're not going to do them. Uh, And they lorded over people, their education and their status and and their positions. Uh, People all over Jerusalem and Israel felt the oppressive thumb of these religious leaders. And here comes Jesus. He stands up to them and he puts them in their place and he doesn't back down. And because of that, people rooted for Jesus because he set them free from the tyranny and the oppression of these religious leaders. And we see more and more of that in in this text and in the gospel of John uh, in these next few chapters. But as we're getting to the text this morning, I want to ask you, have you ever done something and you had the best of intentions in mind, but it still went wrong? It, it didn't turn out like, like you wanted it to. All the husbands in the room say, amen, right? <laughs> Guys, we have all been there. Honey, if, if this can be interpreted wrong, I didn't mean it that way. I meant it the other way, okay? We, we've all had good intentions about things and, and it goes wrong. I'll never forget 
one of my college breaks, I was home, and I have no idea why, but I was in my mom's jewelry and her jewelry chest going through something, looking for whatever, and I found this little brooch. It's a little pen in mom's uh, jewelry stuff, and it said Marie, M-A-R-I-E. Well, my mom's name was Mary, and I saw this and had a flashback to my childhood. When I was about five years old, we were shopping one day, and we were like at a dollar store, some kind of place along those lines. And at the, at the register up there, they had this little panel display, and it had these brooch pins on it with different uh, women's names and a little, you know, fake jewel in it and all this kind of stuff. And I remember as a five-year-old knowing enough about letters to know that mom's name was Mary. And as I saw this, I knew that there were some letters that matched. And so I asked the cashier, I said, what does this pen say? And she said, Marie. And in my five-year-old mind, because it was getting close to mom's birthday and I wanted to buy her a gift, I thought, well, Marie's close to Mary, so I'm going to buy her this pen. (laughs) So I did. I bought my mom, whose name was Mary, a pen that said Marie. I was five. Well, now I'm in college and I find this thing and went, mom, what in the world are you still doing with this thing? You know, she said, well, you bought that for me with your own money. She said, you were kind, you were sweet, you were considerate. You wanted to give me something. It was a gift from the heart. You were all those things. So I kept that. I said, well, you know what else I was? She said, what? I said, a really bad speller when I was five, apparently. I was like, why don't you throw that thing away, you know? So I had the best of intentions, but mom still had a pen that said Marie instead of Mary. And we laugh at that and we could all go, yeah, you know, we've had those sort of things. But you see, not everything in life is so inconsequential. I hear regularly that over 80% of Americans claim to believe in God. 80% of Americans claim to believe in God. But I'm going to tell you something. If the church doesn't get off of its duff and get serious about sharing the gospel message of Jesus Christ, millions and millions of those Americans are going to split hell wide open, mumbling the entire way, but I believed in God, but I believed in God, but I believed in God. You see, because here's the truth. The Bible says belief in God is not enough for a person to be saved and spend eternity in heaven. Belief is not enough. James 2.19 says this, you believe that God is one. That means you believe there is one God. And the Jews did believe that. You believe that God is one. There's one God. And he says this, you do well. That's a good thing to believe that there's one God and to want to to know more about him. He says, even the demons believe and shudder. Look at that. Even the demons believe and shudder. The translation of that is this, believing in God is an essential, it is a necessary starting point for salvation in order to be saved. But guess what? It is not enough to be saved. Even demons believe in God. But guess what? Demons will not be in heaven. They believe in God, but they're not going to be in heaven. Even the less heinous demons, you know, the demons of, of like red lights and, and, and slow drivers in the fast lane, you know? But, okay, I'm just kidding. They're, first of all, there are no less heinous demons. They're all, all pure evil, just like their father, Satan. And secondly, not every inconvenience you experience in life is caused by a demon. Even though I know you have been caught by red lights or you've had stuff go on and say, why are these demons persecuting me? You've been there, right? So I don't believe they, you know, control red lights and all that. Slow drivers in the fast lane, jury's still out uh, on that one. But anyway, 
But demons believe in God, the Bible says, and they respond. There's a response to demons. What does it say? It says they shudder, they shake, they quake, knowing what awaits them one day. Their belief leads to a response. So belief in God is a starting point, but it's not enough for us to be saved. And belief in him is not what Jesus commands and demands and calls those who follow after him to do in their lives. John chapter 8, verse 30. This is at the end of the section we looked at last week where Jesus spoke of being the light of the world. And he told the religious leaders, you will die in your sins. He's basically telling them, you're going to die in your sins and you're going to be separated from God for eternity. So he spoke that to the religious leaders. And verse 30 says this, as he was saying these things, many believed in him. So they believed and said, we think this guy may be the Messiah. We believe, we want to know more. We want to come to this Jesus. So in verse 31, it says, so Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him. Now, Jesus knew that not everyone who claimed to believe in him truly had saving faith in him. Matthew 7 tells us this. It says that people will stand before Jesus one day thinking they're one of his children, and he will say to them, depart from me, I knew you not. People thinking they were saved, but truly were not saved. Matthew 7, Jesus tells us that's going to be the case. And so here people say they believe in Jesus, and he says to them, gives them further instruction. Like I said, there are many who will think they believe in Jesus, but, but who don't. And, and there will be millions and millions of these Americans say, well, I believed in God, but who one day will be separated from him for eternity. It's not that they lost their salvation. It's that they never truly had it to begin with. It wasn't true and genuine as the scripture outlines and tells us we need faith and trust in Jesus more than just believing in him. So knowing that this is the case, Jesus says to these new believers, if you will, these ones who are coming to say, okay, what's what's to this? He kind of gives them follow-up instructions. You say you believe in me? Well, let me tell you what's next. You believe that's a good starting point, but there's another step. There's another part of this journey for you to be truly saved and delivered from your sin to be able to spend eternity with me and my Father in heaven. And this teaching would separate the sheep from the goats. It would determine who truly was following after and had believed and was placing their faith and their trust in Jesus for salvation and who was just jumping on the belief bandwagon because Jesus was standing up to the bullies and the villains in his day and said, yeah, we want to be with that guy because he's really putting these people in their place. So he tells these new believers in the next part of verse 31, if you abide in my word... You are truly my disciples. So there it is. Jesus says, true disciples abide in his word. It's not just believing in God. It's expressing saving faith and trust in him and abiding in his words. One of those marks of a true disciple to abide in his word. And he tells us the result of this in verse 32. And you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. You know what I think is the best news of this principle? It's simple. There's nothing complex, nothing hard to understand, really nothing that's open to interpretation. Jesus says, abide in my word, 
and you will evidence, you will know, and you will show that you truly are my disciples. And you will know that truth. You will know the truth that you're my disciples. And that truth of knowing who you are in me will set you free. You will experience freedom in Jesus Christ. And I know we look at that sometimes and we say, well, there's got to be more to it than that, right? I mean, it's just abiding in his word. Isn't there more? No, there's not. I mean, do, do we need a class? Do we need, you know, to pass a test? Do we need some kind of a special training? Uh-uh, no. Jesus says, abide in my word and you will be my disciples and you will know the truth and that truth will set you free. Now, don't confuse simple with easy. This is a simple truth to understand, not an easy thing to put into practice. Jesus calls us to abide, he says. And that word means to remain or continue or to live. You abide at your residence. Whatever your address is, that's where you abide. You live there. Jesus tells us to abide, live in his word. And in John chapter 15, we'll see one of these days as we get there that Jesus does a a whole lot more teaching on this idea of abiding. And he uses an analogy. He speaks of a branch, a branch that's connected to a tree. He says that branch abides in him and that branch produces fruit. Think of a branch of an apple tree. That branch is connected to the trunk, which is connected to the roots, which draws nutrients up, which produces apples. Jesus said, if you abide in me, stay connected to me, you will produce fruit for me of my kingdom in your life. But he also says, if there's a branch that doesn't produce fruit, it gets cut off and thrown into the fire. It's not truly of him, but I'm getting ahead of myself. We'll pick that up later. But let's talk this morning about this abiding because this is an important truth. Jesus has people coming, expressing belief in him, and he gives them instruction. This is what you are to do next, to abide in my word so you can know the truth and that truth can set you free. So abiding in Jesus implies several things for us. First of all, it implies that we study his word. It is incredibly important that you regularly and consistently read and study get to know what's in God's word. Let me tell you something that never worked for me. Osmosis and learning by osmosis never helped me in algebra when I was in high school, all right? One of the greatest days in my educational history was when I passed my last math class as a college student. Man, I was doing cartwheels that never again was I opening a math textbook. I don't even know how many nights I fell asleep in my bed with my algebra book, either on my face or my face in the book. And it wound up being the next morning, where's my algebra book? I got to take it to school. And it fallen over behind the bed. And so then I'm rushing, getting that out. I never learned anything by osmosis in algebra. And let me tell you something. You're not going to learn by osmosis in God's word either. If you won't, If you want God's word in your life and to be evidenced in your life, you've got to get into it and study it and allow God to teach you because the Bible won't come out of you unless you have taken the time to allow God to put it in you through the power of the Holy Spirit. 
you know, and as a church, we are committed to the power of God's word and to getting our people into God's word. We provide devotional resources to help you in that process. We have a church library. If you didn't know, it's on the second floor up here where you can check out uh, study resources and materials to help you study and better understand God's word. Uh, I, I preach from God's word. I hope that you see that we always start with God's word in the text and try to explain it, that, that God's word is the foundation of the sermons and our service that we build in. We've added a midweek service. It starts this week at six o'clock on Wednesdays because I want us as a body to continue diving into and learning and studying more about God's word. So we have a service scheduled in the middle of the week now where in the hustle and bustle of life, you can come and you can spend 45, 50 minutes and we can delve into God's word so it can refresh us and strengthen us and help us grow in our knowledge and our understanding of God's word. Our mission is to lead people to a growing relationship with Jesus Christ. And I'm going to tell you this. You cannot experience the fullness of a growing relationship with Jesus Christ without a regular steady diet of God's word. It can't and it won't happen. Jesus said, you are truly my disciples, my followers, my learners, if you abide in my word. It's got to be part of your life. And you've got to take the responsibility to make it a priority and build it into your life through the power of the Holy Spirit. We provide resources, but you've got to do the work, the effort, the heavy lifting. You see, the issue here isn't information. We live in in an information-heavy society. You can get more information now than at any point in any time in the history of mankind. And Google will do it for you in .0004 seconds. All right, all kinds of information, but yet pastors report more biblically illiterate, more, more immature, worldly Christians than they've ever seen before in the history of the church. It's not about information. It's about the work and the effort to know God's word and then to apply it to our lives, which is the second part of what it means to abide in Jesus' word. It's that we obey God's word, not just understand it and say, okay, well, I know what that says. Well, great, you may know what it says, do it. That's the hard part. Simple to understand, not always easy to do. But we ask God to help us obey his word. And this is awesome. This is why we're starting with the study of the Holy Spirit at the well on Wednesday nights. God doesn't just say, here it is, go do it. He gives you himself, the Holy Spirit living and indwelling within you to be able to do his word. He doesn't say, here, go do it on your own. He says, I will be with you. I will be in you to help you do what I ask you to do and what I command you to do in my word. And that's where this truth that sets us free is found as we begin to obey God's word. It liberates us. It frees us from the trappings and the stressors and the pressures in this world. When you begin to abide in God's word and put it into practice, you experience what Paul describes as the peace that surpasses understanding. You'll be peaceful and you'll say, why am I so calm and peaceful? I feel like I should be wigged out. That's the peace that surpasses. You can't even understand why you have peace. That's the power of the Holy Spirit that comes from God's word and abiding in Jesus' word. You will also experience, Jesus said in the gospel of Matthew, he says that his yoke is easy and his burden is light. That's because of his power at work within us. 
You see, our struggles in this world comes because the spiritual part of us is struggling and waging war with the worldly part of us that wants to live for self and follow the ways of the world. And as we're in God's word, he's saying, no, live for me, live on a higher plane. And there's that constant battle and tension. But we can win that war. We have that victory through Jesus Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit living within us as we abide in God's word and as we obey God's word. And doing this brings us to the next byproducts that we bear fruit. The Bible says over and over again, we should bear fruit of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Now, let me state, as I have in the past, that it is not our place. We are not judge and jury in determining whether or not a person is truly saved. We do not know that. God and Jesus have worked that out. They'll take care of that in the final judgment. But we are called as believers and particularly as church leaders and for our church leaders to examine fruit in a person's life, spiritual fruit in a person's life. And we as pastors and your church leaders do consider the fruit being born in a person's life as part of the criteria for selecting people who lead and serve in our church. Now, I'll tell you, no one is perfect. I'm not talking about perfection here because if we were looking for perfection, then I wouldn't be your pastor, all right? I don't know you would have a pastor if you were looking for someone who's perfect because you're not gonna find that person. But church, it is right, it is fair, and it is biblical that leaders in the church have a high expectation to follow some basic biblical principles, that they regularly participate uh, and support the life and the work of the church through their regular attendance and involvement in the life and the activity of the church, that they support that church through the regular giving of their tithes and their offerings, and that those persons display a godly character and attitude in their actions and their lifestyles, both inside and outside the church. It is right and fair that we would expect those things of every member, but especially of the church's leaders. And we do hold those standards, and we do look, and we do examine those things. And if leaders, pastors included, do not live up to those standards, then the Bible also tells us that we are to go to, and we are to talk to those individuals and seek healing and restoration so that they do begin living by these principles and by these standards in their lives. And if they refuse to repent and seek restoration and to live according to these standards, the Bible outlines for us steps of church discipline that we confront and we lovingly discipline that person to bring them back to. The idea here is to bring them back to Christ. You need to understand church discipline isn't about punishment. It's about restoration. Jesus basically says we exercise church discipline and we treat someone who, if they refuse to repent and acknowledge the work of Christ in their life, they're saying they're an unbeliever. And so the goal of that is to bring them back to Jesus Christ. So in Matthew 18, when Jesus says, treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector, you know what that means? How are we supposed to treat pagans and tax collectors? We're to share the gospel with them. We're to show them the love of Christ, share the gospel so that they will come to saving knowledge and faith in Jesus Christ. It's the goal of church discipline. And it's right that we would expect these things. And this is part of examining fruit in a person's life. So as part of our study on the Holy Spirit that's going to take place in the well, we're going to study the fruit of the Spirit found in Galatians 5.22. And we'll talk more about that. But I want to ask you a basic question this morning to get you thinking along those lines. Don't wait till we start that study. It's simply this. What kind of fruit are you producing in your life? Is it spiritual fruit? Is it fruit of the Holy Spirit and for God's kingdom? Is it worldly fruit of of things and and passions and pursuits of the world? And I'll tell you this, this 
you need to know how simple this is. If you will ask God with a sincere heart and say, God, help me evaluate the fruit of my life. What's being displayed? What do other people see? You know what? God will show you. He will speak to you through his word. He'll help you know and see what fruit is being born in your life. And if you want to get bold and courageous, ask a friend. Say, hey, tell me, what, what do you see in my life and, and, and the fruit and, and the things that I pursue? And don't just ask people who are going to tell you what, you what you want to hear. Ask godly people who will tell you the truth. You really want to get bold, ask an unbeliever what they know about your faith and your relationship with Jesus Christ based on your life. Ask them what fruit they see, the conversations that you have, the topics that you talk about, the financial priorities that you display. What do unbelievers see and know about Jesus and about God's word from your example? That's tough. That can be a very very unpleasant conversation with the Holy Spirit of God but God shows you those things so that you can change because he wants you to change he wants you to display the fruit of the Holy Spirit his love for people that's his desire for you what would people say about the spiritual fruit in your life based on your Facebook statuses oh Do you know, I hope you realize, people make decisions about you based on what you put on Facebook. If that's news to you, then I'm, I'm sorry to break that news to you, but you need to hear it. We form opinions about things. You, you writing those things and, and blasting that stuff out there says things about your relationship with Jesus Christ. I read over and over again how, how employers are using Facebook more and more to screen potential employees or, or keep up with what some of what their current employees are doing and using that as an evaluation tool. You need to watch those things. We make decisions and we, we, we have perceptions and ideas and we try to stay on some people's good sides because of what we see on Facebook, right? I don't want to be on the, the receiving end of that stuff. This is all about bearing fruit in our life. We need to evaluate these things. And man, I didn't have time today. I, I spent some time studying and preparing. I really wanted to get into, uh, but just couldn't for time. All those verses that you see on your sermon outline, if you see those, I want you to take the time and look at those at home and see that over and over again, the Bible says the same thing that Jesus says right here. Abide in my word, know my word, obey my word, do my word. God's children do what I command. If you love me, you will obey me. We see that same teaching over and over again in the New Testament. Remaining in God's word produces fruit and gives us great freedom in Christ. Because as we study God's word, one of the uh, other byproducts that comes out of this is that God sanctifies us. He transforms us into the likeness and image of Christ. And if we aren't truly saved and we're in God's word and we're reading and we're studying, the Holy Spirit convicts us and says, you know what? You're not really a believer. And I've seen it over and over again in years of ministry. People that thought they've made a decision as a child, as a teenager, as an adult, who remaining and getting into God's word, the Holy Spirit said, no, you, you've never truly, genuinely been saved. You need to make sure that's taken care of right now, priority number one. And those persons gloriously, wonderfully got saved and speak of the difference that Jesus Christ made in their lives that came because they Remained, they abided in God's word and the Holy Spirit convicted them that they had never given their heart and their life to him. 
And I'm convinced if the church did a better job discipling believers and teaching them to abide in God's word, more and more people would come to to this realization that they needed to get saved. Because so many people, I think, have an emotional experience at some point in their life and say, well, I believed in God at that point. That's when it took place for me. But they weren't genuinely, truly saved. And so they lived their life with this false sense of hope and security and think that one day they're going to stand before God based on that emotional experience. And Jesus is going to say, depart from me. I knew you not. And this is the truth of Christ that sets us free. He says, you will know the truth and it will set you free. There is nothing like a clean heart and a clean conscience before God. I've heard individuals say over and over again who are caught in, in either an addictive lifestyle or some kind of immorality say there is, there is a sense of relief that actually comes when someone knows and someone finds out. They said it's not fun, it's not pleasant, but there is a deep inner sense of, of peace and freedom that comes because now people know and they can get the help and they can get the support. They don't have to hide and, and live with the secrecy and this unbearable weight of sin in their lives. And that's the liberation and freedom that Jesus Christ brings. But you see, the religious leaders missed finding this freedom. They didn't get it. Look at their response after Jesus says this in verse 32. They answered him, we are offspring of Abraham. So they jump in on the conversation. Jesus is speaking to these new believers. The religious leaders are there. Now they jump in on the conversation. We are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. Hear the disdain in their voices when they say to Jesus, we are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? If you want a picture of a hard, callous heart, take a picture of verse 33. Because that is a picture of a hard, callous heart that refuses to admit the truth. You see, the religious leaders, the Jews, they hated the idea of slavery. And these religious leaders hated it so much that they wouldn't even admit the reality of their own history or their current situation. Do you know how utterly ridiculous this statement is? We are offspring of Abraham and we've never been enslaved to anyone. Wrong! The history of the nation of Israel was filled with slavery and they just denied all of it. They were slaves to the Egyptians. They were slaves to the Philistines. They were slaves to the Babylonians. They were slaves to the Persians. They were slaves to all the other countries who had their time of political prominence on that regional scene. They were slaves to many, many people. So they denied their history by saying, we've never been enslaved to anyone. You knuckleheads, you've been in slavery for hundreds and thousands of years. But the worst part of it, this is, it just blows my mind that these men would say this, is the very second they say, we've never been enslaved to anyone. Guess what state they're living in? They're living in a Roman state. The Romans ruled the world at that time, and they were rulers over the Jewish people. Now, the Romans gave them some freedom because they thought, you know, free subjects are a little more happy subjects, but they taxed them. They made them follow their laws, some of their customs. They were slaves to the Romans as they speak the sentence. Well, we've never been enslaved to anyone. I'm a little smart aleck sometimes, so I may have called a Roman guard over and said, well, tell me who this guy is and what's he here for? You've never been, this is a Roman guard. What's he doing here in the temple watching over you? It's just like, how could they miss this truth? But rather than rebuke them in that way, this is what Jesus was much better than I am. He, he, he very calmly reminds them 
that he was speaking of spiritual freedom, not political freedom. So he says to them, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. Now that translation, that that literal translation is everyone who is doing sin is a slave of sin. He's basically saying, you may say that you're not enslaved to anyone or anything, but your actions are speaking louder than your words. You know those people who have said, well, I can quit smoking anytime I want, or I can quit drinking, or I can quit looking at pornography, or what they have. I could quit this anytime I want, but they don't. So are they really in control, or are they controlled by that thing? They're saying they can, but they won't. So their actions speaking louder than words. Who's really in control there? Jesus says, I'll tell you who's in control. You're a slave to sin if you sin. It's your master. It controls you. It causes you to do things that you know you shouldn't do. And he says that to the religious leaders. You you are slaves to your sin. But they refused to admit it. Do you know how frustrating it is to try and win an argument with someone who refuses to acknowledge the truth? And that's what these religious leaders were doing. They wouldn't admit that they were wrong. Jesus could have said the sky is blue and they would have argued with him about the color of the sky because they didn't believe anything he had to say. A couple of weeks ago, we were driving around and we had a movie in the van. We we were letting the kids watch that. Shelly and I can have some quiet time as they put their earphones on. So we were talking and we were running some errands around Richmond. And Daniel fell asleep during part of the movie. Well, the next day, uh, or a couple of days later, we popped the movie back in to let him watch again because he had missed part of it. And I was like, well, you know, he can see the part that he missed. And so the older kids were, why are you watching this movie? We just watched it and this kind of deal. And I said, we're watching it because Daniel fell asleep the last time you watched it. Well, he said, nuh-uh, I didn't fall asleep. And I said, well, Daniel, you did. And I reminded him, when he, nuh-uh, I didn't fall asleep, Dad, I seen this. And Shelly and the other two kids waited and said, Daniel, no, you fell asleep. No, I didn't fall asleep. That little turkey argued with me for two days that he didn't fall asleep during this movie. And I'm getting all worked up and amped up. And Shelly said, honey, he's four. And I said, I know that's why I'm not going to lose this argument. I'm not losing to a four-year-old. I was like, you admit you fell asleep or you're not getting sweet frog today, buddy. That's, that's how this is breaking down. Fessed up then. I'll show him he fell asleep. We, we, he just wouldn't admit that he fell asleep. I mean, there was a reality. That's what the religious leaders were doing, and it's heartbreaking for them that they missed the truth of Jesus Christ because they just said, no, we don't believe you. We don't think this is true. And so Jesus wraps up this confrontation. And remember, it started. He wasn't even talking to the religious leaders at this point. He's talking to those who said they believed in him. They were eavesdropping. They kind of came over and worked their way into the situation. But he reminds them that he wants people to come to himself. Never forget that Jesus invited people to believe and to receive him in their lives. John 1, 12, the beginning of this gospel says, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. You notice that that verse said two things. Those who received him who believed in his name. It's reverse order there. We believe because we believe, then we receive Christ. There's this inviting, this receiving, this giving of oneself to Christ. And so Jesus reminds them of this invitation by underscoring the privileges of becoming a child of God through faith in him. He says in verse 35, the slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. 
I know that you are offspring of Abraham. That is literal, physical offspring, not spiritual offspring of Abraham, Jesus says. I know that you're offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me. Remember I said that they were sinning? Killing people is a sin. All right, just in case anybody's fuzzy on that. They were seeking to kill Jesus. And why were they seeking to kill him? Look at this. Because my word finds no place in you. What did he say about true disciples? They abide in my word. What about these guys? My word finds no place in you. I speak of what I have seen with my father and you do what you have heard from your father. And that sets the scene for the throwdown next week about whose dad can beat up whose dad. But the summary of that is that the slave has no right or privileges in the household, no standing because he's a slave. But the son is part of the family with all the perks and the privileges that come with that. And it's that way always for the son because he's part of the family. And I'll tell you, church body, I love you all very much and I care for you and, and, and try and give myself to you in as many ways and as many opportunities as possible. But I'm gonna tell you that my son's over here and my daughter's somewhere and my other son's in my, my three kids know me and have access to and, and parts of a relationship with me that, that you will never know. And that, that they're my kids. And it's that way in your family. Your family knows you in ways and has opportunity and access to you that I won't. That's what it means to be part of the family. And Jesus is saying here, I want you to be part of the family. John 1, 12, when you believe, when you receive, you become a child of God with all the perks and privileges that come with that. So this morning, I wanna invite you, if you've never given your heart and your life to Christ, not just believed in God, but surrendered yourself and invited Christ into your life, I wanna invite you to do that. The Bible says that demons believe and they do something. The demons shudder. What does God want you to do? He wants you to admit your sin, admit that you've broken, you've disobeyed God's word. You haven't been faithful and obedient to what he's called you to do. Admit that and then believe that Jesus died on a cross for you because, because you broke God's word. You should be punished for that. But Jesus took your punishment. The punishment is death. He died in your place so that you could be forgiven. So you believe that and then you receive, you invite Christ into your life. Not just believing in God, you invite him to come in to forgive you of your sins, to give you that gift of eternal life and then take control of your life through the power of the Holy Spirit so that you will live your life for Jesus Christ. You may be a believer here this morning and God's spoken to your heart and, and convicted you that you're not abiding in his word. And he's saying to you, you need to prioritize. You need to reprioritize and make my word a priority in your life. So maybe you wanna come to the altar and just ask God to increase your hunger for his word and your obedience to his word. Whatever other decisions may be on your heart this morning to unite with this church or some step of obedience, whatever it may be, if God has spoken, then would you respond today? I invite you, come and know the truth of Jesus Christ. Abide in his word so he can set you free because when the son sets you free, you are free indeed. Let's pray. Lord, as we look at the truth,